Mystery author Lisa Sherwood-Fabra has a fresh angle on Sherlock Holmes, featuring the master detective as a wily adolescent, saving his family from disaster in a series that's been acclaimed by critics for its deep understanding of Sherlock's life and times. Lisa is an academic with a lot of in-depth research in the period. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading today, I talk to Lise about the scandal that rocked the Holmes family before the famous detective became the master of sleuthing we all know and love today. We've got a group giveaway, books that are perfect to relax with on the beach or in front of the fire. Details in the show notes for this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com or in our weekly newsletter. And you can join in with that newsletter so you always get a weekly prompt about the new episode and the download links for the free books. Don't forget also that you can get exclusive bonus content, including Lisa's answers to the Getting to Know You five quickfire questions by supporting us on Binge Reading on Patreon. Jill Paul, talking about her latest book, The Collector's Daughter, has been on our new feature on Patreon Encore for the last two weeks, and it goes live for all our other podcast listeners this week. Check it out on patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the joys of binge reading to see what you're missing out on. But now here's Lisa. Hello there, Lisa, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm so honored to be on your podcast. I don't know what time people will be watching this, but for me, it's late afternoon and for you, it's early morning. So it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm very pleased that we were able to get together. That's right. And also we're on almost opposite sides of the globe. You're in Virginia, are you? No, I'm in Dallas, Texas. Oh, Dallas, Texas. Okay. Uh-huh. And I'm in Auckland, New Zealand. So yeah, it's yes. the miracle of modern technology. Isn't it? <laughs> and I do hope someday to make it there. I understand it's an incredible place to visit. Not yeah, to people mention say there. so. We love it, I must say, yeah. Look, Lisa, you've delved into Sherlock Holmes' world in a great deal of detail with three highly praised non-fiction books about his life and times and now four mysteries about Sherlock when he's a young man before he gets into his stride as a detective before fame struck us as we'd say so where did this fascination with Victorian life and Sherlock Holmes begin Well, that's a good question. And people ask me, and I think the first thing I would say is that I always, I recall Sherlock Holmes and knowing about Sherlock Holmes since I was little. When I was growing up, there was a show on in the afternoons after school that was called Dialing for Dollars, and they would show old movies. And they would also make random phone calls to people. And if you could give the count and the amount, which I never, they never asked me, although I always knew it, um, you could win money. And and so I would watch the show and they had on a lot of the old Basil Rathbone movies. And I think that's my earliest 
earliest recollection of Sherlock Holmes. But I also remember cartoon characters that would wear the deerstalker and carry a, a micro a magnifying glass. And I think that also I knew that he was a detective. I really didn't get into Sherlock Holmes until I was much older. I do recall reading The Captain of the Polaris, which was a Arthur Conan Doyle story, which is not a Sherlock Holmes when I was in high school. But I don't really remember reading that much Sherlock Holmes until I was much older. However, the way I got into it, uh, well, of course, then later on came the movies and, and other television shows. But what really got me into it was one day I was on the treadmill. And when you're on the treadmill, you know, you can let your mind kind of wander around. And I thought I was started thinking about Sherlock Holmes for some reason. And I thought, how did he become Sherlock Holmes? And uh, a little bit of research tell, told me that he didn't, there wasn't much in the original books about Sherlock, about his childhood or about how he grew up. There are just a few clues. We know that his ancestors were country squires, that his grandmother was the sister of Vernet, who was a French portraitist, and uh, he had a brother named Mycroft and a few other little details, but nothing else. And I thought, well, this is a really blank slate that I can I could play with. And my first thought was, so Sherlock, how did Sherlock Holmes become Sherlock Holmes? What if it was his mother? The, the, the pat answer would be his, his father. And I thought, but no, what if it was his mother? Because his mother was this really brilliant woman, but she's frustrated and confined in the Victorian world. Women weren't expected to do much more than raise children and keep house. And so... But the women were also in charge of their children's education to a certain to a certain age until the boys were sent off to school. And so she could easily be the one who groomed her children and helped them with their intellectual abilities. And I think that's and that's really where the whole thing started. And the nonfiction books came because as I was writing these books and I was researching, I discovered that there was. I needed to learn a lot. The first thing I had to learn was what's a country squire. And from there, I that was how I started doing the research. And then I started sharing that research through essays. There is a, a network of Sherlock Holmes societies across the world. There was a very big one or there was one in New Zealand I used to share my newsletter, my articles with for their newsletter. Unfortunately, the person who had been in charge of that passed away. There were an awful, but I still share with about 15 different newsletters, different societies across across the world. Then because not everybody's in a Sherlock Holmes society, I thought other people and writers other writers who might not be writing Sherlock Holmes, but might be writing about Victorian England, might be interested in this information as well. And that's why I published it. And those yeah. were just came out before the books did. Yes. That take, perhaps raises the question of going one step further back. Why did you even start thinking in terms of writing mysteries before you even got to the Sherlock Holmes stage? Were you were you already having ambitions to be an, a fiction author? Oh, yes. I, I always tell people 
that, and, and this is one of the, in my bio, um, I knew that I must have a little bit of talent. I'm not sure how much, but I thought I had a little bit of talent when in the second grade because I was, I got an A plus for my little story about Dick Jane and Sally's ruined picnic. Uh, so I figure, yeah, I must have a little bit of talent for storytelling. I really didn't do much with it. I would, I, I did some things in high school, but I really didn't start writing seriously until I was living in Mexico as a, and um, I started reading Isaac Asimov's science fiction book. And I bet there, if there's anybody else out there who's ever been a writer or is thinking about being a writer, they probably have read some, something and said, you know, I could do this better or I can do this. And probably did, and that's what I did. I said I can write a I can write a science fiction story, and I had an idea, and I stayed up at late at night and wrote it after I put my children to bed, and sent it off to Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine, and it came back almost immediately, being rejected. But I wasn't really discouraged. I was rather encouraged to know that yeah, I could finish a project like this. And also I needed more work. I needed to learn more about creative writing. Yeah. And I would encourage anybody who's interested in doing that to check out. And I don't know what the educational system is like in New Zealand, but here there are what's known as community colleges, which offer classes to the public. And I took creative writing classes. I took them so much. They told me I couldn't take them anymore. back to your your series Sherlock is 13 and 14 he's just verging into teenagehood although perhaps in Victorian times they did have a different way of looking at childhood so quite possibly at 13 or 14 they were already regarded as young men were they yeah he well there was never really an expectation that you should act like a child I don't think not as much as here And so he was expected, his father was a country squire, was a magistrate, and he would have expected, he expected his son to behave as a young gentleman. And being out in the country, he didn't have as many experiences with other people uh, until he went to school. Yes. And it's clear even by the way that he relates to the young girl, the maid, He's extremely courteous, courteous, and very aware of the social distances and between them, and how he has to work, act in a very proper way, not even mm-hmm. putting his hand on it, that kind of thing. He's very yes. aware of of the the rules of society in those days, isn't he? Yes, yes, and his father's constantly reminding him of it, and yeah. his mother sometimes too. <laughs> yeah. Now, you mentioned that his mother, you said in your story that his mother was brilliant. Was she, do we know anything much about his, Mrs. Sherlock Holmes in his mother, Sherlock Holmes's mother in real life? As far as Conan Doyle, the only thing he said about, he never mentioned the mother's name. I came up with that. But he said that the his Sherlock's grandmother was the sister of Renee. And if it had been the father that was somehow related to Vernet, you would expect to see Vernet somewhere in, in, in the name. And so just looking genealogically, I always assume, I, I decided it had to be the mother's side, his mother that was related to, had a, a French background. Yes, 
And yes. it's very interesting. The actual Vernet, you have to go back to the grandfather, his grandfather. They were all artists. And there was his grandfather actually married an English woman, her last name of Parker. And mm-hmm. there was there's a belief that one reason that Vernet was so popular in England is when the British would the when they would do their grand tour uh, and they would they would go to the Vernet galleries and th- or, or you know they would visit Ger- Vernet because they had somebody they could speak English with. Uh-huh. Because yes. his wife was there. Now in the first book, the one that you open with and that sometimes is available for free to people. I don't know if it's always, but occasionally you can get it as a free book. His mother is accused of a crime. We won't perhaps do too much of a spoiler, but that's how Sherlock first, he gets called home from Eton because there's this big family drama going on and his mother is in trouble. And each one of the books involves some family member getting into trouble with the law in one way or another. And this book, the one that we're looking at now, is called The Adventure of the Purloined Portrait. And it takes show the home. Ah, that's <laughs> wonderful. Yes. It takes the Holmes family to Paris and to that link with the French family and with the art world. So tell us a little bit about a bit about the premise for this book. Sure. Well, for one thing, I was worried about having too many murders in the village where they live. <laughs> there was a TV show. I don't know if it, it, it uh, ever got exported to New Zealand, but there was a TV show called Murder, She Wrote. Oh, yes, and, very much so. Yes. Yes. And she they lived in a small town called Cabot Cove. And every time somebody came to town, you knew they were either the murderer or they were going to be accused of murdering somebody <laughs> or the victim. One of the things. And you know, they, they had a murder rate that was way out of whack for their population. <laughs> so I, I didn't I thought, well, I've got to get them other places besides this, this village. And so I thought, well, Paris is a good place. I really and so there we know that there's some reason that they're going to Paris. Sherlock's mother makes it clear uh, she's been on ease since book three, and so he's he knows something's going on, but he doesn't know what. But the first night they find out that there's been this sketch that she was done of her as a teenager that's compromising, and so she's there to try to resolve this issue and she gets a cop gets the copy or gets the sketch and it's immediately stolen and the person who painted who made the sketch originally was one of her former suitors and he is murdered or he is killed right in front of their eyes and he's run over by a carriage and so that's the beginning of the book now, they actually pay for that sketch, don't they? So they are yes. basically uh-huh. held to ransom to, to get yeah. it back. Yes. And as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that Mrs. Holmes has had a slightly scandalous past, which she's carefully buried so that nobody, I don't think even her husband, knows the full story about it. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little about that without giving away too many spoilers. Well, you know, as you can imagine, as her family was in the artistic world and as and so you have a more bohemian lifestyle than you might imagine yeah. for a, a staid Victorian British family. 
And so she she had kind of a a different upbringing than uh, what she would have found in the the states. And she was a little bit of a rebel a, a rebel. There was a time in another book where she smokes uh, she smokes a cigarette and she shows quite skilled. She appears quite skilled at it, and she tells her son, "Don't tell your father that I smoked this cigarette." <laughs> <laughs> and she said, and it's a nasty habit. It's something that you shouldn't take up. Of course, we all know he does later. So. <laughs> you, we've mentioned your nonfiction books about life and times of Victorian England. Mm-hmm. What do you think would might be the most difficult thing for people to grasp about the world that Sherlock lived in and when they're looking at the stories or, or the films or reading the books? Is there something that's particularly difficult for contemporary audiences perhaps to grasp or understand? Well, I think when reading the stories, there are there is usage of words that people aren't familiar with anymore. My favorite one is slop shops. Because it might sound like something that you would, you know, pigs might be involved or something. It's actually ready-made clothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a store that sold ready-made clothing. And so, like, one of my essays was on clothing and where one got clothing. And the slop shops were actually, it was primarily for sold for sailors. And they sold a lot of it in the U.S., they exported a lot of their ready-made clothing to the U, uh, to the United States at that time. I was just going to say it's just very much resonates because I do historical mysteries set in 1860s, 70s California, and the mm-hmm. most recent one I did was slightly more focused on San Francisco, and I was doing a little mm-hmm. bit of research about San Francisco, and that's exactly what they said about San Francisco, that they had these stores with very poorly made clothing, which were mainly for sailors. With There was one guy who bought a pair of shoes, and the shoes fell apart the first time he wore oh them, and he went back and tried to demand his money back, et cetera, and that ended in a rather violent act. So it's just funny that we should both be talking about, I don't think they called them slop shops. I'll have to check, but exactly that. They mm-hmm. did export it to Cal- to California, obviously. Wow. Wow. That's a long ways to go also. Yeah. That, yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Oh, well, and I always find it's really easy. Sometimes you have to really watch yourself because you start to write something when you're doing historical um, fiction. I think it's true also for even uh, contemporary fiction, but you'll say, well, wh- where is this place or what does it look like or what's the word there or something? And you can easily spend an hour or two just read, <laughs> just oh, running yes. through the internet. Going down those rabbit holes. That's right. We'll be back with Lise very shortly when she'll tell us about her four years in Russia and what she has planned for her writing over the next 12 months. If you'd like access to the Encore Chats when they're first posted, this month the new one's going to be with Chuck Greaves talking about his latest Jack McTaggart mystery, The Chimera Club, then you can become a supporter for the cost of no more than a cup of coffee a month. Not only will you hear Lisa's answers to the five quickfire questions, and every week the author's answers to the five quickfire questions, but also you'll get a monthly newsletter with advance notice of coming guests so that you can read their books ahead of the interview. Check it out. Binge reading on patreon.com. 
patreon.com. That's patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. And now we're back with Lisa. Now, I'm turning away a moment from Sherlock because you have published a thriller, which is quite a departure from the historical fiction. It's called Saving Hope. It's set in Siberia and it deals with a microbiologist who's drawn into a fight with a deadly virus and the Russian underworld becomes um, part of the story. But that was published well before the pandemic that we've recently experienced in the last couple of years. So, Tell us about that. And you haven't followed through with any more thrillers. Have you got any more thrillers that you'd like to do? Tell us a bit about that aspect of your work. Sure. The This thriller came out of, I, I lived in Russia for five years from 94 to 99. And I set this just at the end of my time there. I actually set it in 2000. But at that time, it was... Russia was still feeling uh, its way toward a democracy and toward a market economy. I was working for the Agency for International Development, and I was aware of, and this was written in the press, so I'm not sharing anything that's a state secret or anything. I was aware of the bioweapons programs in Russia being, there was an effort to try to shut down some of those bioweapons programs. But at the same time, you had scientists that were losing their jobs because of that. And the Iranians were actually there trying to recruit Russian scientists to come over and develop their own bioweapons and nuclear facilities and and programs at that time. This was written up in, I want to say, Vanity Fair. So it's not something that I'm sharing any state secrets about. And I started thinking, what would cause a scientist to want to do that beyond, you know, beyond beyond just continuing the work that they had been doing? And so I made uh, the scientist be a woman who had lost who's had lost her job and had a child that was sick. She has a heart condition. And so her her purpose or her view of the world is how do I get my daughter? Um, how do I save my daughter? And that's where saving the term, uh, the title saving hope comes from. Her daughter's name is Nadezhda, which means hope. But in along the way, she just simply falls into this plot to actually export one of the viruses to Iran, kind mm-hmm. of jumpstart the whole process. Yeah. So you wrote one thriller, but you didn't continue with the thriller genre? No, I had a hard time selling this book. I finally found a publisher for it. But every time I would pitch it someplace, they'd say, well, it's all Russians. Don't you have an American in it? Yeah. And and so it was very, I, I had a hard time. Finally, one publisher did sign a contract for it and publish it, but then they went under. So <laughs> I, pu- I, repub- I published it on my own. It's funny how publishing can be so influenced by those sorts of factors. You can imagine trying to even sell that day- book today would be even harder, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Somebody asked me recently, they said, do you think there's more interest in it today? And I said, I haven't even tried to suggest such a, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually 
was it that, that there was something that I tried to sell at one point and they said, I don't think the, and the, the agent said, I wouldn't be interested because this is the wrong time for that kind of book. Yes. And yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I can say that the Russia that I lived in was very different from the Russia that there is today. Yes, that's an interesting thing because just moving on away from the books a little bit to looking at your, your wider life, you had a decade of international living, didn't you? And I wondered yes. if during that time you had a chance to see something of France because getting back to the uh, Purloined Portraits book, Paris comes very much alive in that book. It feels as if you know that city oh, quite well. I'm glad you enjoyed that part. <laughs> yeah. I worked at that. I really did. <laughs> Yeah, well, I did a couple of different things. Yes, I have visited Paris. In fact, the first time I really traveled internationally, other than going to Mexico, which I had done, my first one of my first jobs was working for the international area of the Census Bureau. And my first assignment overseas was actually Burkina Faso, and which is in Francophone Africa. And so we had to change, we had to we flew in and out of Paris onto Africa. And so I got to go to Paris, which was my first trip really overseas, the first trip to Europe. And I know I walked around Paris. I had like a day. I arrived in the morning and my flight didn't leave until the evening. So I had a day in Paris. And then on the way back, I took a day or two in Paris. And I know I walked around the entire time with this big smile on my face going, I'm in Paris, I'm in Paris. <laughs> But since then, yeah, I've been back a few times, but I, I cheated. I don't know if you'd call it cheated, but I I actually have a, a reader who uh, enjoys my books. She's a fan and she lives in Paris. And so after I finished the book, I sent it to her and I said, please check this out for authenticity. Make sure I'm getting things right. And oh, that's that wonderful. Was, yeah. 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 Look, we are starting to come to the end of our time together. Oh. So turning to Lisa as reader, this is the, binge, the joys of binge reading. We like to make recommendations for people's next great read, particularly in the area of popular fiction. What have you been reading lately that you might like to recommend? And have you ever been a so-called binge reader? Uh, well, when I was in um, middle school, which was or junior high, um, I had I one year I took a study hall instead of a course and you had the option of going to the library and at that time I would go to the library I would pick out a book I would start it in study hall I would take it home I'd finish it I'd turn it back in and the next day I'd get another book. <laughs> that was probably my biggest binge reading portion of my life um, I just recently finished a book called Three Daughters in Yalta, which was, uh, it's a nonfiction, but it's about Franklin Roosevelt's daughter, Winston Churchill's daughter, and the daughter of the American ambassador in Britain during World War II, uh, during and after the meeting in Yalta between Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. And it's a fascinating book because you don't, they played uh, something of a role in those negotiations that you are that's not really well known, and that was fascinating to me. Um, and then 
I just also recently read a book called The Prince of Bombay. And that was takes place in the 1920s in Bombay. And it that was also a, it's a mystery. And in fact, the name of the main character, her last name is Mystery. It's spelled M-I-S-T-R-Y. But... <laughs> <laughs> But I, I'm going, that's no coincidence that you can't, that you discovered that name. <laughs> and I would recommend both of those. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. Look, looking back down the tunnel of time, if, if you were going to do this writing career over again, is there one thing you'd change? And if so, what would that be? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> I think I think I would probably not be so afraid of sending things out and just doing it. I think at the beginning, I was really, I didn't tell anybody I was doing it at the beginning. And I think I wouldn't be so afraid because there. I heard something once and I thought this is a really good way of looking at things. It's just words. Yes. Do you think it was a fear of failure that you didn't want to put your head up and then feel as if you hadn't carried through? I think probably there's that's that played a role. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So what's next for Lisa, the author? What do you actually have on your desk looking ahead over the next 12 months? Well, I, as much as I love this series, I would like, I'm still uh, seeking, and this may be just my own background and everything. I'd really like to get into traditional publishing as well. And I do have a series a book that I started. And speaking of San Francisco, I'm talking, I'm, just before the, it, it takes place just before the earthquake oh, in San Francisco. Yeah. And it's another uh, mystery. Uh, uh-huh. I don't want to say too much because until I know what's happening, in it, uh-huh. <laughs> I've started it and I'm excited about it. So we'll it's, see how that goes. We'll and see you if plan I can, for that to be a series as well, if, if it, it goes? It could be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so at the moment you are self-publishing and Uh How is that? How do you feel? Is it a little bit too much to take on everything? It is a lot of work. There's the marketing part portion and the promotion portion is probably the part that is more time consuming than I thought it would be. Yes. I do feel like when all you have to do is see how many books are on Amazon to know that if there's not, if you don't do something, you're nobody's going to hear of you. Yeah. That's quite right. Mm. Yes, I had a newsletter this week which had some very discouraging, you know, statistics in it about how many books there are out there that you're competing against. It is. It's a very, very overcrowded market these days. So you do Mm -hmm. have to have something to stand out. Yeah, I can understand the desire to have a traditionally published because it does give you a a start in terms of visibility in the market, doesn't it? Yeah. It does, yeah. yeah. Unless you have a fa- unless you have a celebrity name, <laughs> there's only a few of us out there that have that. So, <laughs> now, do you enjoy interacting with your readers, and where can they find you online? Uh, sure, the easiest way to find me is on my um, website www.lisasherwoodfabre.com, and I'll spell that out. Because because it's a long one, it's L I E S E S H E R W O O D F like Frank A B like boy R E Lisa Sherwood Fabre dot com and you can sign up for my newsletter 
and that comes out once a month. And then I'm also on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I have a Pinterest account, but not many things go on there. I'm working on that one. But the best one to find out what's going on is to go to my, is get my newsletter and you'll get a free book, uh, a free short story when you do that. Lovely. And, and just a little aside, Fabray, that sounds French. Have it you, is. Yes. So you've got some French background in the family. Well, my husband. Oh, yeah. Okay. My husband, his grandfather was French. His grandfather was from a little, little town up in the Alps between France and Italy. Uh-huh. And yeah. We actually were there just before COVID hit. Oh, good, good, yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> and one other thing that struck me as you were talking, uh, you mentioned that you have raised a family. And I wondered if having your own children made you more aware of what would Sherlock's mother have been like for, for the genesis of the stories? Yeah, mostly the thing that I really draw on is I, I have two boys and some of the, th- the things that I observed in my boys, I put into Sherlock at that age. Yes. I, I, I have an inkling of an idea of what the boys were going through, a boy goes through at that age. Yeah, there's a quite an interesting um, relationship too between Sherlock and his brother Mycroft. They're different personalities. They they uh-huh. do appreciate and respect one another, but there is also a little bit of tension between them at times, isn't there? Yes, yes, yeah. And that's very normal family life as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, Lisa, it's been wonderful talking with you today. Oh, Thank well, you I've so much it. for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Next week on Binge Reading, Brenda Janowitz and the Liz Taylor Ring. Brenda's book about the Liz Taylor Ring was picked as one of the must-reads for 2022 by everyone from Town & Country magazine to Katie Corrick Media. It's a flirty, funny story about the impact of the famous ring that Richard Burton bought Liz Taylor, told over several generations, part romance, part family saga, on Binge Reading next week. That's it for today. Thanks for listening and happy reading.